Listener supported. WNYC Studios. That's the thing about OCD is that you never break with reality. So there's a part of you that knows always that this is kind of ridiculous, and yet you cannot stop doing it. There's, you know, the fear part of you that just drives you. This is Death, Sex, and Money. Touch me, big boy! The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot. Same situation. Pay him off and you're clean. And need to talk about more. I'd kill for him. Kill for a chocolate bar. I'm Anna Sale. Hi, Anna and the Death, Sex, and Money team. A couple of weeks ago, we got a voice memo in our inbox that stuck out to me. It was from a listener named Diane Davis. I'm um, calling from my quarantine here in my house. Forgive me if you can hear my small children downstairs screaming. I swear my husband is with them. Diane's kids are eight, five, and two. They live in New Jersey. Normally, Diane and her husband both work in Manhattan. The subject line of Diane's email was OCD in the pandemic. I'm wondering what other people who have obsessive compulsive disorder are doing during this time and how they're coping. I um, did a lot of uh, work on that with medication and cognitive behavioral therapy, and um, I've done a lot of exposure response therapy, and, um, and then all of a sudden this pandemic happens and it's like every nightmare that I um, ever had in my head as I was furiously washing my hands um, is true. Diane is an actor. Just over a month ago, she was performing eight shows a week on Broadway, playing Jenny in Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, until March 12th, when Broadway shut down. We were at rehearsal. There's no show tonight. You know, go home. And and then it was, it just all came to kind of an abrupt halt. So now, she told me on the phone, she's home with her family, caring for her kids, and trying to manage her OCD in the middle of a pandemic. She's dealt with fears of contamination and intrusive thoughts for over 20 years. They started when she was in her late teens. I would get these just overwhelming, um, like, walls of doom is the way I can describe them. Like mm. They would come, come towards me and hit me. And I had no way to make sense of what was going on. I was 17 years old. And um, I just felt like something bad was going to happen. And, um, you know, that sort of spiraled into me washing my hands 300, 400 times a day, keeping track of everything I touch. Um, and I think when I went into therapy for OCD, what we did was just um, sit with that original feeling. Mm. So it was like, you know, touch, okay, now you're going to touch this doorknob with your pinky and we're going to sit here and rate how anxious you are and then just watch it crest and go, you know, I'd have this scale of between zero and a hundred. So it's like, how anxious are you now? You know? And then it would, would gradually bring it up. So touch, I remember touching the bottom of my foot with my 
with my pinky was like, I think I went to like a 95, you know, and I wanted to, I was sitting there in this room and I wanted to just like run, Mm. run out. And, um, and it was just, you have to sit, 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 sit. And then you watch it and it kind of goes down eventually. And that's the key to it, right? Is that you have to always go towards the thing that you're afraid of. And, um, and so that's sort of, I guess what I'm trying to do now (laughs) um yeah so what has it been like for you for this real threat to be moving around everybody's yeah (laughs) i remember in january some friends who know me very well like texted they were like how are you doing because it was sort of coming or february i guess and it was sort of coming towards new york um and i was sort of joking i was joking about it and i was like you guys i've been preparing for covid for my entire life And I think I was sort of like, you know what, I'm going to be able to handle this because I know what it is to be really afraid of, of contamination. And, and I thought I was going to be okay. And then I don't know, it sort of, it sort of came out of nowhere and just knocked me sideways again that, um, yeah, I had like a breakdown with my husband two weeks ago where I, cause I also, then I get this. I get an anxious uh, breathing thing where I hyperventilate. And I just, one night I just broke down with, with my husband and just, there's something wrong with me and I will never, you know, something's broken and I can't cope. This is like every, every fear that I've had, you know, when I was really, really in the midst of, of struggling with this is like, Oh, you were right all along. (laughs) Um, (laughs) so it's very weird that everything that I was afraid of is coming, is coming true. Yeah. And I, and then my rational brain knows, you know, there's like OCD brain and then there's rational brain, just like, no, Diane, you know, this is a very specific thing that's happening. It's fine. You'll be fine. Um, but then I have this other spinning part that's just um, that is that is um, on high high alert. Does it are there moments where it's confusing about whether it's you're thinking about something that you you need to take action about because it's rational and it will help you take care of your family and keep your family safe, um, or when you're like this is me spinning out like do you, is it always clear yeah. what's what? I feel like this pandemic is sort of blurring those lines a little bit. Um, you know, like, I don't know if this is a rational thing, but I'll tell you something I did. My husband took out the recycling and he came in after taking out the recycling and he didn't wash his hands. And I, <laughs> and I completely freaked out at him. And Um, and I screamed at him that, um, (laughs) I was just like, you have to think about that garbage can and that the people who are taking out the garbage have gone around. And this is where my brain goes. It's like picturing every single house Mm -hmm. that the, you know, that they've gone to and they're touching those things. And then they're touching our recycling bin. And then he goes and he touches our recycling bin. He walks in and now it's all in our house. And and I just was like, and I followed him out and he was, 
<laughs> I swear we have a good marriage. It's fine. But, um, but he was like, <laughs> he knows me very well. And he was like, okay, okay. So I think it's like, then when he comes in my house, he feels like a foreign, like a foreign, you know, body of something that's coming to infect us. Yeah. And maybe that's not the rational part, you know, that's where I, that, yeah, it's that, it's that inner, um, engine of fear. That is the part that is the confusing and the OCD part. What's it like for you to be, um, trying to take care of yourself and, and have compassion for whatever things come up, um, while you know you're being watched by your little kids in your house. Yeah, that, um, that I'm trying to be very, um, aware of because my middle child especially, um, is the, the most like me and, we were just hanging out in the kitchen the other day and out of nowhere, she just went into the the bathroom to go wash her hands. And I was like, Oh, what are you doing? And, um, and she was like, I'm just washing my hands. And I was like, why? We were just standing here. And she said, I don't know. I just felt like I needed to. And I, that made me that just, you know, a little alert bell kind of just went off in my head that, um, I should keep an eye on some on on that with her, and I worry that this. I worry about what this pandemic is instilling in her. She's five. Um, in terms of that, I mean, there's nothing I can. I I try not to be insane about having them wash their hands. Their kids were all in an isolated house together, you know. But I, I will keep my eye out on her and just make sure, you know, over the next years, few years that she's, um, yeah, that she's okay. Do your kids know you have OCD? They do not. No, I've never said that to them. No. Uh, yeah, I don't know if I should. Maybe I will someday. Um, I, you know, I try to really be, I really don't want them to grow up with, with, with unnecessary fears. Does that make any sense? Of course it makes sense. sense? (laughs) I mean, I'm struck by like, you've been in treatment for years for this and learned language for how to identify what's happening in yourself. Um, but I think you're, you're, you're probably, when you describe that, like, fear response and the that that gets activated and then that can um intensify a lot of worry or or um that feeling of trying to manage i feel like mi- most all of us are going through that right now yeah in some way um have you found that you are needing to lean on sort of um techniques that you haven't needed to manage your OCD that um, you didn't feel like you needed anymore? I did have to um, 
I do stay on a, um, an anti-anxiety medication that I'm, I've been on um, for years now. Um, and a few times I've had to take something for an acute panic response. Um, other than that, um, I do a lot of like meditation now, which I think is very helpful. Inviting, almost inviting in what feels uncomfortable and sitting with it, being with it and letting it, letting it have its say (laughs) and have its moment. Um, because I think it's when you try to push it away that it just kind of comes back and tries to, then it starts screaming at you. So, um, yeah, I was thinking about, you know, what I feel like people must be going a little bit through something like what I went through when this first hit me when I was, you know, 17 years old. You know, this this fear of contamination is in all of us now. And I was talking to a friend and I was like, I know what that's like. I, I hope that the world doesn't become me. <laughs> mm. Um what did you mean by that? I just afraid, afraid, you know, afraid to touch, to to hold, to to be near. Um, but I just don't want people to be afraid after this is all done. I don't know. We're all going to have to do some sort of collective exposure response therapy. Or <laughs> oh, I kind of love that. We just everybody zoom in, and Diane's going to help us. <laughs> Touch your friend. Now sit. (laughs) How afraid are you now on a scale of one to (laughs) hundred? Coming up, author John Green. The last time we talked on the show, he told me about the tools he's gained over time to manage his OCD. And now, like Diane, he's finding that a lot of them aren't as helpful. Yeah, I don't have a, a brain that's perfectly designed for, for a global disease pandemic, certainly. Like, I have, a, I have many years of, of not knowing what size of a response to a perceived disease threat is rational. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. John Green is the best-selling author of young adult books, including The Fault in Our Stars. He's also a podcast host here at WNYC Studios, and along with his brother Hank, an avid YouTuber. It was on John's YouTube page a couple of weeks ago that I saw something that actually gave me a lot of comfort right now. John filmed himself taking a walk in the woods near his home in Indianapolis, looking at some trees and talking about the things that are helping him stay grounded right now. It reminded me of my first conversation with John back in 2018, when we talked about how he's had to learn to manage his mental health, both on his own and by asking for help from other people. So I called John up to hear more about how he's doing now. Hi, John. Hi, how are you? I'm okay. How are you? Also doing okay. I think that's the best case scenario for the moment. The first thing John Green wanted to talk about was John Prine. I have to say, um, 
how much I loved your interview with John Prine that, that you just re-uploaded. Thanks. Sad, right? Very sad. It, very sad, but it was just, it was such a, it was such a wonderful interview. It took me back to high school, actually. Uh, there was a John Prine song, that famous John Prine song, Angel from Montgomery, was like the only thing that brought me any comfort or consolation on the worst day of my life. And I was just thinking that it's a, it's a hell of a gift, you know, to, uh, to, to, to give a stranger, to give somebody some consolation on the worst day of their life. And John Prine gave that to me. Mm, That's nice. Um, Am I calling you at home? Yeah, I'm actually in my bedroom. And how's your how's your household working right now? Oh, I I would say it's working poorly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my my wife Sarah has a book coming out in five days, a book that she has worked on for two and a half years, and it's a wonderful book. And of course, this is difficult time in which to publish it. And so that's challenging for us because Sarah has a lot of, a a lot of work obligations and like millions of parents around the country, we are also kind of homeschooling our kids, which is not a job that I am qualified for or good at. What grades are your kids in? Uh, my daughter is in kindergarten and my son is in fourth grade. Uh-huh. Have you picked up on how much of this they're capturing? Like, are they are they feeling stressed about the state of the world? Yeah. This is hard for them. And they're extremely resilient kids. They're also kids who, who are very fortunate to, to be in a, in a safe place. And and I think they know that they're fortunate, but it is hard for them. And I can't pretend like life is normal, Mm -hmm. but I I actually have found the thing that's most helpful is is not to say much, but just to try to listen. Mm -hmm. Like that thing that, that you, that you just did is I have, I've just learned to do this. I don't know. You probably, I don't know if you do it on purpose, but, um, a lot of times if I just say, like, if I just make that noise to my kids, they keep talking. Yeah, I probably do that more in interviews than I do with my children, though. <laughs> 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 I think with her, I'm like, wait, are you sad? Are you scared? Tell me more. You know, and she's like, ah! Right, yeah. <laughs> it's one thing to name the feeling, um, but it's another thing to, like, overname the feeling, yeah. you know? Like, sometimes I feel like I overname the feeling to my kids where I'll be like, are you sad? Are you sad because of the coronavirus? Are you really, really sad because you can't see any of your friends? They're like, thanks. Okay, got it. (laughs) And how are you? How are you coping? What have you noticed about your mental health while you've been at home with your family during this time? Yeah, I think a lot of people with anxiety disorders or, or who have obsessive compulsive disorder like I do, are having a difficult time. And, and I certainly am. I also, however, have work and have a house and there's, there's some outside space. 
That's mm-hmm. incredibly helpful to me because mm-hmm. when I am outside, the world is mostly normal. It is, it's spring here in Indianapolis, very early spring. And so uh, that's kind of where every day I get the dose that I need of um, something being approximately normal. I also saw you posted a video um, where you mentioned that you're taking a daily bath. Yeah. Tell me oh, about your if baths. If you can take a bath, I really recommend it. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a profound bath enthusiast. <laughs> like I, I've always loved baths and the unhappiest periods of my life coincide with when I've only had showers and our house has a bath, has a bathtub. It's not huge, but it's, 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 it's an acceptable size for a grown man to take a bath in. And every day I take a bath toward the end of the day and I light candles. I go, I go all out, Anna. If there is a, a thing in my house that I can use to make the bath feel more like a, a, a otherworldly experience, I do it. Aromatherapy, absolutely. Bath salts, if they're available, yes. Have I used my kids' weird glitter bath bombs? I have. <laughs> and do you listen to anything or read anything in the bath? Is it weird if I tell you that I, that's where I listen to the John Prine interview? No, that's, I actually love knowing that. That's where I'm I listen honored. to the John Prine interview, and I and I had a nice, I had a nice cry. Oh, uh, yeah. Mostly, so I listen to podcasts or I listen to like soft music. That's nice. Um, I'm curious for someone who has developed tools over time to deal with intrusive thoughts, um, including about illness. Uh, what, what has this time been like for how you manage your inner monologue? Well, in some ways, I have a lot of experience managing those thoughts and not knowing whether they're rational. It's just that the the balance has shifted so dramatically. Like I'm used to being able to look at people in my life and I have this intense fear. That's the only thing I can think about. And I look at them and I see that they don't have that fear. They don't have any, for them, this is a normal day. And that's, that has been in the past, like one of the ways I've reassured myself. And now I look into the eyes of the people I love and I see that they have some version of the same fear that I have. And that's scary and and it's and a little destabilizing. Mm-hmm. Have you, has there been a moment that you can think of where you had to sort of stop and say, oh, I got to ask somebody for help right now. I need help. Yeah. Yeah. A few times. I get, I, I mean, I get, stu- I get stuck in my head. And if I, if I, if I get stuck in my head bad enough for long enough, it becomes pretty much debilitating, you know, like for me, at least like being pulled out of my routine and then um, having some of that stuff that I took for granted as, as normal or natural or inevitable. Uh, 
losing some of that has been really hard. And, um, and so there have been periods where it, it really, it is like literally hard for me to get out of bed because even though I know there's a lot to do and I know there's a lot of people counting on me, I just feel so overwhelmed and I, I feel like scared beyond all, all reason or reassurance. Hmm. And so then I do have to reach out for help and I do have to, I have to, you know, call my therapist or call one of my best friends and just have them talk me through it. Mm-hmm. There's that great Emily Dickinson poem where she's talking about losing touch with reality. And she says, uh, and then a plank and reason broke and I dropped down and down. And that, that feeling of dropping down and down and not knowing where the bottom is or where the floor is, is, is really scary. Um, and so when I feel that happening, you know, I, I know that I need to call somebody I trust and somebody who loves me um, and and that I'll be okay. Yeah. But it took me a long time to know that. Yeah. Well, you're making me think about this in such a, just like how our routines provides just this scaffolding that helps us, you know, hold on to to that plank of reason. And I, when you describe that, that plank breaking, not having a bottom. um, Yeah, that really, I had an argument with my husband this, this week. And I feel like I was just like when you all of a sudden don't know what's, what facts are real or what feelings you want to defend and what feelings are um, ones you need to let go of, you know, it's just so disorienting. Yeah. You know, you feel panicked. Yeah. I mean, it's just a lot. It's a, it, this is on, you know, this is not with, this has no precedent for, for most of us in most of our lifetimes, there hasn't been anything like this. And I, I think maybe there, maybe there's some help in acknowledging that or some hope in acknowledging that, like part of the reason that this is hard is that we don't have experience doing it. Like we don't have experience with this. This is new and it's, super weird and really, really difficult for some people, you know, unbearably difficult. That that's really hard. It's really hard to go to your job every day and not know if you're safe. Mm -hmm. And I I think acknowledging that it's hard is okay. And that's the other thing um, is that I think it's okay it's inevitable, in fact, to go slower. And I'm going to try to keep myself safe and keep my kids safe and support my spouse. And I'm going to really look forward to this bath that I'm taking. That's John Green. There's a link to my first conversation with him in the show notes of this episode. There's also a link to that YouTube video of his walk in the woods. John's wife is Sarah Uris Green, and her new book that John mentioned, it's actually a really great thing to have if you're staying at home right now. It's called You Are an Artist, and it's full of prompts from famous artists to help you get your creative juices flowing. I have already bought my copy. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. I'm usually based at the studios of the investigative podcast Reveal in Emeryville, California. Our team includes Katie Bishop, Annabelle Bacon, Afi Yellow Duke, Emily Botine, and Andrew Dunn. 
Our intern is Ayo Osubamiro. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Twitter at Anna Sale. The show is at Death Sex Money on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And our email is deathsexmoney at WNYC.org. Thanks to Alexander Duggar, who, like John, lives in Indiana. He's a sustaining member of Death, Sex, and Money. And if you've been looking for some motivation to join him and all the other listeners who are supporting us right now, John Green made a pretty compelling case at the end of our conversation. I I am one of many, many people who... In fact, everybody I know who listens to your podcast, like, we don't just like it. We, we love it, mm. and that's something that, like, listener metrics are so terrible at judging. Like, it's so, it's so hard to make the case to sponsors, like, oh, but our podcast, it, people don't just listen to it, like, it changes their lives. But it really does, and I know that everybody who loves this podcast as much as I do feels the same way, so thank you for continuing to make it even in really difficult circumstances. Thank you, John, and thanks to all of you who are supporting us right now. To join them, go to deathsexmoney.org slash donate. We really appreciate it, and it really matters. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. 